welcome to Live Your Own Way with me, Lucy Gleason Interiors, chatting homes, life and inspiration with my very special guests. Hello, welcome to Series 3. I hope all is well there with you. I'm back chatting with some super interesting folks and kicking off episode one with Zach Monroe, founder of award-winning architects based in Brixton who cover homes, housing, workplaces, commercial properties and landscaping in the UK and beyond. You may also know him as host of Channel 4 show Inside Out Homes, working with clients on different budgets to achieve their dream homes with his state-of-the-art designs while cleverly merging the great outdoors. He was also an architect behind a project on Grand Designs and an esteemed judge on their House of the Year spin-off. So I'm really looking forward to discussing his work and inspiration behind some of these projects, what the future of architecture is currently looking like, and his thoughts on sustainability within his profession. Hello, Zach. Um, Thanks so much for chatting with me. It's a a real pleasure to talk to you about your inspiration and career so far and and how you've created it all and built up such a successful architect's practice. Well, it's a pleasure to to be asked all these exciting questions. (laughs) Well, my first thoughts are, having watched your work on the show Inside Out Homes, which we will talk about a little bit later, design appears to be intrinsic in you. It's like a natural understanding of people in their homes. So I'm intrigued about your early life and inspiration that led you to study architecture. Yeah. um, I mean, I've not really thought about this, but interestingly enough, I, I, I think almost sort of a bit egotistically that I do definitely have this affinity with you know the space that surrounds people man-made space and and almost things more than people um uh, and i suspect having young children who have recently been diagnosed with something similar that i probably was always a little bit adhd autistic that kind of stuff uh, which which led to that because i've always really been drawn to those things and i've always found that um the home was a really really key thing to me, you know, when, whenever we moved home, it was traumatic, um, more than it really needed to be, I think. And, um, you know, on the one hand, if you asked my, uh, my mum about this, she'd say, yeah, he, I mean, he was always building stuff on holiday. You know, we'd go to a beach, I would just scour the beach for, for driftwood and make little huts and things or climb trees and try and make dens in there, which I think is fairly usual behaviour for you know, a young boy. Um, and I know it to be now because my son does the same thing. But I, I also think that um, that for me, the, 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 the sort of the, the, the heart of the family was the home. And on the one, you know, that, that's almost an unnatural position because obviously it isn't. It's the family itself. It's the people. But I think from a very young age, I really associated those things together. And there was one thing that happened uh, when I was about five or six, which was that our, our house essentially got repossessed. Um, and it was quite a shock, actually. Uh, and, and I must have been five or six. And I haven't really thought about it for years and years and years. But recently, I started to think, you know, that might be part. Of, that might be part of it. You know, this this real kind of worry that this solid stuff that is in theory unmovable and permanent, actually, it isn't. You know, um, and and I remember that. I mean, I remember there's a, there was a horrible occasion where I, I came back from school and I couldn't get into our house and I couldn't work out why. And I, probably as a five-year-old, broke into the house. I managed to get in through a window and it was empty. And, and things that I thought were permanent, like 
you know, a, a bedroom with all your stuff was empty. And there were sort of there was gaps on the walls and paintings. And and I sort of, I mean, that, I think that that did actually have a profound effect on me, along with this kind of predisposition to give importance to space. So I don't know if that's a driver, but that definitely is one of my very early experiences of, um, of uh, I suppose, architecture. <laughs> it doesn't sound like a very good one. <laughs> no, it's really interesting. And, and I'd, I'd say as well, sort of having watched you, is that you're very nurturing of the, the people as well within the design process, you know, your client. Yeah, I mean, I think, I, think, I, I, I think that one key, when we were studying architecture, you know, a long time ago now, I remember one of the things that was very clear to me as a truth, and we would talk about it as, as students, um, was that to design well, you need to have an affinity with people. You need to have an empathy. You need to care and understand, you know, who you're, who you're building for. So, so I, I, so, and I, and I, and I do, <laughs> I suppose I sort of think, I often say it to, to people who come work for us, you know, you know, if, if, I mean, this doesn't, it sounds cutthroat now, but if, if we're hoping to make money on this, then go and work in a bank. This, you know, no architect makes that much money apart from the top, top players. It's a, it's quite a difficult kind of environment to work in. And so I think people who end up in architecture are people who, who do care about the people and do believe fundamentally that design can make a huge difference to the well-being. And did anyone in particular inspire you along the way? Um, yeah, there's, there's been a few, yes, yeah, absolutely. There's been a few sort of people. I mean, when I was quite young, I suspect, I mean... I mean, on, on the one hand, yes. On the other hand, no. So let's start with the no. I mean, I, I went to a fairly basic state school. I gather it was one of the lowest rated in London. Um, there were no girls in it because um, it was a bit rough. And so my education, start education was, I suppose you could say, rocky. But uh, at that point, it was very clear to me that I didn't want to choose between arts and sciences. I wanted to do both. And when I, when I told the careers advisor, I wanted to do that. They sent me to work in a printing factory because it's practical, but it's also to do with art, which you know, it wasn't. Um, but then that did sort of spur me on to think, well, no, hang on, this isn't, <laughs> this is not what I meant. And so, in a way, I sort of fall. At, I want to say that I fell into architecture in a way. Um, but I think other people could see it was what I wanted to do. I mean, you know, it sounds crass to say my mum knew, but I had uncles um, who said, "Ah, oh, yeah, you're probably going to be an architect." You know, watching me build stuff on the beach, and you know the obsession with Lego that every kid has, you know, and every parent takes to be a key that their kid is going to be a toweringly great architect, was there. But in terms of inspiration, I think I did. A, I, I think I, I think I did find out quite early on that my grandfather wanted to be a, a, a um, an architect. And growing up mainly without a father, my grandfather was a big father figure, and he was in the Second World War and therefore didn't become an architect. He um, came back and did something very different after that. So I think I must have sort of thought, well, he wants to do it. He's this amazing guy. Maybe, maybe I should do it. So not really an architect. And then I think my mum took me to see an early exhibition of, of uh, Foster's, Rogers and Sterling at the Royal Academy. I must have been 15 or 14 or something. I really thought I might be an architect, so we went to look at it. And, and it's a very alien world to a young human. You know these really intricate technical models, um, and, and you know really strange drawings. 
but behind it, this almost intangible passion for making people's worlds better and having a vision, this idea of you can have a vision for stuff, you can have a big plan and you can work towards it. It was really inspiring, especially the work of uh, Richard Rogers, who of the three, me always appeared to be um, the one who cared the most, which is, you know, would be rude for Sir Norman and James Sterling. Well, actually, I know, I did care a lot as well, but Rogers is the one who, who hit home. And I think from that, from that onwards, when I started to study architecture, I was kind of slightly uh, mud, you know, feet in the mud with people like like Le Corbusier, obviously, with with modernists, and, and there was a whole postmodern thing at the time, which was uh, you know kind of introducing elements of classical architecture in a playful manner, and, uh, that kind of stuff. And I really wasn't that just looked like plastic to me. There was this central thing that what you build should be expressed by what it's made of. You know, there's an honesty to it. And so, you know, the, the great modernists like, like Corbusier or, 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 you know, even Lasden here, you know, or, or some of the kind of great English mid-century architects were the people I kind of looked to, I think. They, they were kind of most inspiring. So, yeah, they, 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 they kind of helped me. And, but I also think you have to mention the people you work for. The most formative uh, influences on you are probably uh, the people you work for. Uh, and I worked for a bunch. So I worked for Jean Nouvel, uh, uh, at the time quite well-known architect in, in France, in Paris for a while. Came back, I worked for Michael Squires, who uh, who were quite a, a, a big uh, firm that have a really good balance between commercial and, and kind of their, their artistic aspirations. But the biggest influence actually was a guy called Anthony Hudson, um, who was my sort of second real job after after a diploma. And, you know, it was a small practice and there were three of us to start with. Uh, he was obviously the boss. And as a result, you very quickly were, oh, my God, how do you build this? How big is a bit of wood? You know, what are the standard? And then, and then how, do you, how do you, you know, how do you understand this central train that your first idea goes through a set of iterations and it finishes as a really simple drawing that a builder is going to hold on a messy site and think, well, how do I build this? This is impossible to build, you know. So there's a feedback loop where then you talk to the builder who says, well, actually, this is how we normally do it. I, I think working for Anthony Hudson, uh, who I think are now called Hudson Architects, was, was one of the single biggest kind of leaps for me because it's where I really learned a lot of the craft. And so this all led you to uh, start your own practice, didn't it, which you've, you've had for about 26 years now? Yeah, I mean, 26 years? No, it can't be that long. Actually, I think I remember the first time I wasn't doing any work of Anthony at all was the year 2000. So it's 20, 21 years. Yeah. 21 years. Yeah, something like that. So I, I was doing little bits and pieces before then. And it did, yes. I mean, his, the, the, the format of his practice changed and he kind of had a local director and then he uh, was moving back to Norfolk and stuff. And it, it was a different environment. And actually, I was thinking, if I'm going to work this hard and this late. I may as well be doing it for myself. You know, um, and so I and I had a, a bit of work coming. So I, I basically yeah, set up on myself in my you know my front room as, as the cliche goes. This was in Brixton, wasn't it? And this is in Brixton, yeah. So I, I you know I'd been in Brixton for a while, and then for the last um, yeah yeah th that's where the twenty six comes from. That was that was how long I'd been in Brixton. Ah, okay. And how many are in in the team now? So we're now eight. Uh, although there's there there is some maternity absences at the moment there's eight of us in the team we're still in Brixton because I'm a very proud Brixtonian 
uh, and as we're on our way to being a thing that is greater than the sum of its parts, I like to think. And, and how many projects are you working on at any time? So that's an interesting one, actually. I think we sort of, we have uh, about 20 or so, I think, going at any moment, of which half are very active, you know, half are very active, of which maybe there's two or three major projects at a time. So there's, we, we, you know, we manage our workflow quite carefully. Um, but they range from things like, you know, little extensions where we can, you know, we can only really charge the client at cost because there's nothing in the budget for an architect. Um, but they, but and it's a tiny, you know, it's almost an opening in a window, and you know, in a, in, a, in the back of the house, and a, you know, a tiny bit of an extension that makes a huge difference. To bigger stuff where you're 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 looking at a master planning scheme for you know 400 houses down in the West Country. Or, or we do actually one thing we're very proud of is we're working on this um, project in Brixton, which is the new Brixton House Theatre, and we're doing the building next to it, along with a, a, a Foster Wilson architect who are doing the theatre itself. And it's a building that I've known for the sort of thirty or so years I've been in Brixton, which was people thought it was a squat. It was actually a sort of, with the council's permission, it was taken over by a housing cooperative. It's called Carlton Mansions. And the they, uh, council wanted to take possession of it again as part of a much bigger scheme, which was to bring a theatre and new, house, new homes to, to Lambeth and Brixton. And we managed to get in on the project and we managed to secure that part of the work, partly because we're local architects and we're quite sensitive about these things and we have kind of good connections, partly because our skill in working on you know, existing houses is, I think, you know, existing buildings is, is, is there, understood. Um, and that's a really interesting project because it's commercial space, it's workspace, it's workshops, but it's on an existing building that has a lot of historic value. But it's also one that virtually should have been demolished and rebuilt. So it's, it, it ranges, you know, very, very much from kind of very beautiful little posh, beautiful things to trying to change the world. I think there's a general assumption with architecture that, you know, the projects have to be really big and that's why sometimes perhaps someone's put off from you know looking for somebody for like you say a, a smaller space but that, it's not the case is it you work on all different size projects i think for architects it's quite hard to do um the smaller projects you know in over the years i've developed a sort of you know used tools to work out exactly how many hours we're going to spend on the project and i think you know as an architect Someone comes to you and says, I want to do a, a you know, re-extension. I've got 50,000 pounds. As an architect, I'm like, that is, that is just not enough. No way. As, as a human, you know, as a father of three and in, in living in the house, I'm like, oh, my God, that's so much money. <laughs> and you sort of think, well, it's hard to then turn around to these people and say, um, well, if it's 50,000 pounds or 150,000 pounds, we have to charge the same because the amount of work just to get the drawings down have the conversations and take it to planning is the same you know up until you get into sort of quarter of a million or half a million or a million um those early tiny small projects they, they cost the same so it's really hard to work to, to deal with that and we and we really do make an effort to try and be able to take on those projects you know we're very transparent about what it's going to cost we work really hard to make it efficient we sometimes more than i'd like make a loss on projects um you're not even breaking even but because you sort of care about what you're doing. And, and, I, and I think the truth is in today's Britain, yes, an architect is a luxury 
for um, for for uh, you know for building an extension. But the truth is also that it isn't a luxury at all. You know, if you don't use an architect, the problems that you encounter, if you don't have a kind of clear understanding or someone in charge, someone takes responsibility, you end up with terrible problems. You know, problems like um, having you know getting not to what you wanted and wasting the fifty grand that you had. On an extension that you can't use and it's too cold and it doesn't function to Grenfell, you know. I think I think in our profession it's widely acknowledged one of the main drivers of Grenfell is the lack of what we like to call the golden thread. The person who did the drawings at the beginning understood what was being done, had no power at all while the thing was being built to say, ah, this isn't right, that should change. You know, no one was taking responsibility. It was it was the sort of cheapest possible build. Uh, you know, run by, I suppose, market forces. And, you know, I suppose, you know, uh, 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 let's call them low rent tenants in market forces don't rate very highly, clearly, from from that system, not, not pointing any fingers, but in that system, you know, tenants are less important than cheaper cladding. And so so, so I, I, I think... Architects are essential, and I think in other European countries it's obvious. When I worked in France, there was no question that you wouldn't use an architect for a project. But they can also really help on smaller projects. And I think that one of the things that, that, that we do as a practice is we I support a, a shelter charity. Uh, we, every year we choose a charity in the last year or so to beat shelter. And I do free consults for people who have tiny projects that we can't take on. Um, uh, and I'll do a, a half hour, an hour consult. Uh, and we used, you know, it's stuff that we used to have to judge quite a lot for. And before Zoom, we had to go and visit and take half a day. So it becomes quite expensive to do that. And I, you know, you can't do six of those in a week before you go bust. But we do those for free. And we, uh, and as long as they give a fifty pound donation to, to shelter, and and that really, I mean, I think it's been really helpful because people are really um, grateful and, and uh, you know, happy to have that. Oh, that's, that's amazing. And on the other hand, we've raised sort of about two and a half thousand pounds this year alone from doing it. And so I think, well, you know, I think most architects believe it should be there for everyone. Good design and understanding construction should be available to everyone. Yeah. It's a huge responsibility, isn't it, being an architect? It's not all kind of, you know, just the finished product. There's so much that goes into it because obviously you're you're having to take into consideration like is somebody's potential dream home and um all the legalities and everything so this is it isn't a job that, that you would just uh, choose lightly yeah i would yeah I, th- that's exactly right it's not it's not a job you would choose lightly and when i was about just before i went to university so probably 16 or 17 i went to uh do a bit of work experience we, we found any architects that we knew friends of the family and stuff because no one in my family was uh, uh they weren't professionals but they no one was, was an architect um, and I worked for architects, three different practices. Uh, I can't remember them all, but one was in Barry Stebbins, they were called Medici. One was uh, Greenwood Adams, who was the father of Matthew Lloyd's architects. Matthew Lloyd and Matthew Lloyd architects now. And I can't remember who the third was. But they all, they, they all said, oh, man, don't be an architect. Don't be an architect. It's, uh, it's just you, you don't earn enough. It's too much stress. You know, you're massively liable. But they all so, they seemed all so happy. And they were such lovely people. I thought, well, yeah, I know what you're saying, but I'd love to be you. You know, why wouldn't I want to 
why wouldn't I want to do? Why would I want to do that? Uh, and I think, and I think that I do understand now, and I also often give the same advice. Uh, maybe in the way you've couched it, you know, don't tread lightly. You know, consider it, because you know we are um, the least remunerated, uh, hardest working uh, profession with the most liability, and and you know you, you mentioned the liability of what you do to someone's home, which. You know, you can understand from my perspective is is soul destroying if you get it wrong. But also the liability. If you're the guy on site with the most insurance, and there's a team of lawyers behind the builders on a on a on a big project who are just looking to make those claims against you, you know, which would almost be out of business. So yes, it's you know when you do a drawing, it's 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 not just draw something cool and yeah, that's amazing, right? Go and build that. It's like well, if you build if they build what you draw and there's something a bit wrong with what you draw. You know, you will pay for it. Yes, I, I can imagine it's um, stressful at times, but it must be so rewarding. I, I think, yeah, you know, I, I think it is stressful. I mean, we in the practice, we are we're aware of the stress, you know, and I think I'm probably most aware. And that the more senior you get in our practice, the more stress you're aware of. And those theory, you can you can um, manage it better when you get older. And, and in a way, the youngest members of the team. Are, are the ones who are the least stressed, and that's great. So we sort of encourage it. We're not deliberately saying maybe you should be more stressed, you know. Um, but but I think um, I think it, it is stressful, but it is extremely rewarding. But like many things in in contemporary society, you often forget to celebrate the positives. You know, you, you and and in our profession, you can imagine that a lot of our work is solving a problem. And once it's solved, moving on to the next problem again and again and again. If you solve a problem and then have a bottle of champagne, you go, "Woo! Oh man, I worked out how this hand roll works." If you did that all day long, you would get nothing done. <laughs> drink a lot uh, of champagne. <laughs> drink, well, yeah, I mean, you know, we don't drink that much champagne, but you know, that's that, that's the image, isn't it? But, but I think I think that, I think the issue is that probably um, we forget sometimes. So I try and make a point now of um, at the end of a project sitting down with a client and talking with them to learn how the first year in the house has been or in the project has been, to understand what they, they know in the building uh, and how they're enjoying it, and, to, and for me to get feedback, but also to just have a moment for them to say, um, uh, yeah, it's made a big difference. And, and I think they do. You know, We recently finished a project um, down near the, the Surrey Hills, and they're such lovely clients. And you know it was it was quite an awkward build during COVID, but they uh, they are so lovely about it, and they say it was made such a difference to us. And you know, the, and the biggest thing that that, that hit me I wasn't that that's great, and I shared that with the team. And, and you're right, those those elements are really rewarding. And we took the photographs; they're very rewarding. But one of the things they said to us was, um, you know, it saved hundred pounds a month off our heating bill. And, and this is a retrofit project, so you know it's, it's renovating an existing house, and that's so rewarding because one of the biggest problems we face at the minute is climate change, and, and, and one of the issues we struggle with is building a new passive house. One thing, but but actually, the, the often the, the cheapest, the most efficient house sustainably is the one that already exists. So so that the, they are suddenly the energy use of the house has, has gone down by that much. Kind of was, it, it really makes us sit back and think, okay, you know, I know that my profession says I should be designing towers and airports and 
you know, incredible houses on the side of cliffs. But if these smaller projects end up making a significant difference to the environment, then, you know, for me, that's incredibly rewarding. Yeah. Are, are you finding that clients are sort of more informed now on energy and sustainability? And have they already thought it through before they meet with you? Um, not really. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yes and no. So, you know, we, we uh, a couple of years ago put in place a system where we, we make sure that we at least ask the question. That's, that's the first point. You, you, you don't ask the question. There's always been, even within our practice a few years ago, there's this assumption, ah, they won't be bothered. If they don't want to spend the extra money, it's going to cost more. Let's not even ask. So now we always ask the question. Um, and, and I push it a little bit. Uh, and I, I think that, say, I don't know, 20 years ago, it, was a neat, it appeared to be a niche market that we, as architects, we were all very concerned about. So, you know, 20 years ago, I would never have been able to get an air source heat pump in a development or a mechanically vented heat recovery unit, what we call NVHR, into a, into a, 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 you know, a house. Whereas 10 years ago, people were a little bit more, I think now, people are totally aware of the climate emergency. It is an emergency. And if they really are like, yeah, whatever, then you think, well, you're not the clients for us, actually. I mean, I'm, I'm acutely aware that having worked for, you know, for myself for 21 years, but been you know, worked, worked for about pretty much 30 years now. Um, if you're not part of the solution, you're, you're, you're part of the problem. And, and so in the early days, you just, you get on and you just do the work. At the end of your life, if all you've done was you did the work and that's it, what, what is the sum total of what you did? And if the sum total of what you did is create a massive amount of carbon in the atmosphere and, you know, really ruin your planet for your children and your grandchildren then stop working <laughs> you know then stop immediately so i think we, we still encounter clients and often they're the kind of mid-scale developers you know um who are not convinced you know i had a conversation recently someone said ah oh, you know heat pumps they're not really efficient are they and you're like no the reverse is true you know if you're building a new house and you're not putting an heat pump then you're going to have a real problem in a few years time when your gas boiler becomes illegal or when gas prices go up and from, from your money point of view, but you've straight away got a real problem, which is that you're relying on fossil fuels. So you're, you are, you know, your house is, your house is part of the problem. Your house is, your house is doing harm, as it were. So I, I do, I think, I think people have to be, I mean, I don't think they've got a choice. And if they come to us very quickly, they are aware because that's not all we talk about, but it's, it's part of every conversation, from the very beginning to the very last one. Yeah, big part. Are you finding that clients are, are happy to reuse and repurpose aspects of their homes more nowadays? I don't know. I think different clients. So if we're talking about, you know, individual families in houses, I think that there's always this this desire to keep stuff, you know, beyond what I would normally want to keep. There's, you know, you've lived in a house for a number of years and though the drawing says you're going to remove the wall between the bedroom and the bathroom, when it goes, like, oh, my God, the wall's gone. You know, there's this natural reaction because you're, you're, you're almost physically connected to this, to this house, to your home, you know. So I think, I, think, I think people have naturally always wanted to, um, you know, to keep stuff in their house because you're not caring about it. And so often a lot of my job has been to convince them that that's not doing you any favours. 
you know, um, uh, it's a sort of strange, like everything, a strange dichotomy between keeping stuff that you feel is significant, you know, uh, from an affective, as in affection, point of view, uh, and and looking at the aspects of the house that are basically a prison, you know, uh, uh, sort of Victorian architecture, as pretty as it may be, is a difficult, uh, you know, leads to difficult behaviour. You know, if you have small windows, low down in the wall, uh, built traditionally, and spaces that cost a lot to heat, and therefore you're working with hot central heating or you're cold at night and they're damp because they're single glazing, and you've packed in a low house, and, you know, the gardens are small and there's not a lot of lateral light. Well, you know, that is something that affects you every morning, every afternoon, every evening of your life. So it has a massive effect. So sometimes the discussion is, well, we want to keep a lot of this, but I think a lot of what's wrong with the house is the fact that your window's too small. And classically for architects, you know, bigger windows make a huge difference. It's just really clear as well that you're... Um you're very focused on merging the interiors and exteriors of building. Um, is that something you realised was important during training or you've learnt along the way? Yeah, I, that's interesting. I think both. I mean, architecture training is, is or let's be kind about this, was haphazard um, at best. Um, so you don't, or we didn't learn that much about how to actually you know, realise an idea. Uh, in any of the schools that I that I went to, um, but I think that there is a uh, a fundamental thing in our culture which comes from the modernist movement. You know what, what people generally call mid mid century modernism. But one of those cornerstones of modernism was the importance of context and connection to the context. Um, uh, you know, to be really blunt about it, if you got a massive window, then Obviously, you're much more connected to the outside, and it's much more connected to the inside. But but on a on a less kind of potentially uh, crass level, the, the the a building that is honest about itself will probably sit more comfortably, you know, in its surroundings, be they urban or or rural. I mean, a tree, for example, isn't about looking pretty on the inside. On the outside, and the inside is completely different. A tree is purely a result of of the function. This whole adage of form follows function, um, often being much maligned. But you know, a, a tree sits there, and because we, it's obvious what it is as a thing, it, it doesn't need to justify its position in the landscape because it's quite comfortable. And I think good architecture does something similar, where it responds to its context uh, either by you know taking cues from it, um, uh, or, or or just you know like like, like you know like good psychological advice just be yourself <laughs> if you're, if the house is sitting there just being itself then the way that shade from nearby plants falls across it as, as the sun moves through the sky the, the way that you know different environments make it look different the way that the materials weather you know, if if they are if it's straightforward and if it's if it is itself then um then i think that really works and and for me that's why that's why my wife always says she's the kind of um she has a hard life being the wife of a brutalist. I think people think brutalism is about brutal. It, it's nothing to do with the word brutal. Uh, brutalism is about the French brut, you know, brut champagne, for example. It's about honesty. And for me, that what that's saying is 
if my house is built out of concrete, then I need to see that concrete. If my house is built out of wood, then I should see the wood. If, if you know, I, I don't, you know, you don't want to start building a building and the external finish is just a sort of, it's just lipstick. You know, it needs to perform a function. What What are your favourite kind of materials? If if you had the opportunity to work with each time, what would you go for? We see we use we do use a lot of wood, and and from an environmental point of view, that's 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 something that we like. There's a thing at the moment which is um, essentially vacuum baked local timber, um, ash, for example. Um, so vacuum baked ash. I think there's a company called Brimstone. Uh, I think a product called Brimstone, but some others. And what's nice about that is it's a it's a timber that is that is that grows naturally in England, that's local, but it has no, in its natural state it has very little use uh, in construction. Once it's been vacuum baked, it's actually quite an interesting product. It ages differently and it can be used as external cladding. So we've used that quite a lot. I really like timber as, as a as a material, and and in complete opposition to my environmental credentials, I love concrete. <laughs> you know, it's just there's something about it that um, it, it's my guilty pleasure. Really, is is how, is 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 you know how how you justify it. I know that you can't really. I do justify it in terms of, of, of buildings that will last more than 100 years old, that are well detailed, you know, things that don't need to be redone. Um, so I, I don't see us getting away from concrete massively. We try to, um, but and I also, I mean, the biggest thing for me is glass. I mean, unsurprisingly, you know, when you get uh, the things that glass does is it's just so magical, and that's always been there. I can remember as a kid going to exhibitions in the gallery from sort of contemporary artists, where it was all about smoke and mirrors, essentially. You know, it's the early days of video installations and that kind of stuff, and you know, there'd be mirrors going on and glass, and you know, the, the, you would go into a room. I seem to remember where, where you know, the light levels were changing, so you wouldn't move. But at one point, you'd see the people the other side of the glass. And as the light levels changed, you didn't see your own reflection. And as the light levels changed again, you'd see some people further away in the room. This, this aspect that glass has of, you know, transmission of light and reflection almost, for me, defines, um, you know, how, how a human reacts to, to their environment. You know, they take in some of the information and they and and they you know and it does something to them and they give it back in a way. Glass is just you know for me it's just magical. It really is. I, I live in a in a house in um, Assi now that we finished building very recently, and it's just basically everything faces one massive window onto the garden. Unsurprisingly, and it's a really simple move, but the reflections on the walls of the trees nearby as they change every day of every year. Um, you know, and, and as the clouds go past, and it just it means you can sit in you can sit in one spot, and and learn to watch the world go by slowly. On a practical level, talking of glass, how do you avoid drafts with glass if they've got great big windows? You just design it properly. <laughs> <laughs> this is the one. This is what the one of the wonderful things of working with, you know, in where we're working now. We now have very high tech glass, so even the best double glazing done properly works well. Um, triple glazing even better. There's heated glass, I'm not a massive fan of it because you know putting energy into glass just to solve a problem seems a bit silly. It's not the glass that is the issue. It's the it's the gaps around it. It's the framing. You know, it's the aluminium framing or whatever you're using. 
if you design a house properly, it's much less of an issue. So, um, what, you know, what we should be doing is putting big sections of glass on the south to catch the winter sun. And that's what happens here at, at my place is that the, from, the, from the morning on, from the early morning to about, you know, one o'clock, the sun goes deep into the house and heats the concrete floor. And, and so for the rest of the day, the, the house is warm naturally. So it doesn't use heating the house. I think the heating only really ever goes on in November nowadays. So it goes on for three months a year. Oh, that's amazing. Three, four, yeah. Especially for such a sort of big house. And it's because it, get, it gains so much from solar gain. So I, I think, you know, the issue isn't glass. The issue is an understanding of how you relate to your environment. And so talking of which... Obviously, uh, you had the show Inside Out Homes, and I'm waiting impatiently for more episodes of that. <laughs> um, it's on Amazon Prime. So you work with loads of, of different clients on that, and it were quite diverse projects, really. Um, were you approached for that show, or how did that come about? Yeah, I, I initially thought I was someone was pulling my leg. So I we did a, um, I did a, a, I was the architect for a brand designs project a while back in Brixton called Park House, and. Um, and that must have gone quite well because on the back of that, I think Channel 4 picked up this architect with some slightly interesting glasses. And the fact that I was clearly passionate about what I was doing, I think, I don't know, because they don't really tell you why they picked up. And then I started to be approached by production companies. And they were all, I mean, I think what happened is someone at Channel 4 said, right, this is the guy we're going to have. Now can you come up with a format for him. And, and what happened is a guy called John Silver, who's, a, who's, a, who's, an, who's a quite a an important person in, in that world of, of kind of TV production and production, really interesting guy actually. Um, he came up with this idea of trying to marry landscape architecture with architecture and thought this was exactly what I had been doing, you know, what I've been trying to do for so long. And they and we, you know, and he came up with the format. And so as a result, we kind of we we kind of uh, thought about it more. But I mean it was literally they said, oh, you know, do you want to come in for a chat? So I was like, what? Why? You know, I had no idea why I was there. I had no idea what they wanted to talk about. I'm not really a TV person. I wasn't really a TV person much. So um, that happened. And you know what? It was the, it was the best thing. I'm so grateful for, for that because you, you, um, you, 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 when you have to explain what you're, why you're doing what you're doing, you sort of remember why you're doing it. And I think when we, we sit there working away, especially times like these, you know, COVID times, that we've just sort of gone through, you you um you forget what your kind of direction is. You know, you're a bit rudderless. And I think that show really made me remember, oh yes, it's true. You know, the modernism talk about context, it's really about getting that stuff in. And and it also it sort of you know uh, it kind of um sharpened up my kind of memory of what's wrong with this house for these people. Most of the time it's because they are yeah it's more it, they're imprisoned. And so they're not connected to nature, um, and we need to be. And and uh, and I think that that um, the common thread in all of those projects, which were all kind of live projects that we did, um, was was that the their 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 lifestyle and their kind of their their well being was improved, you know, and it demonstrated to be improved by a bit of design work. Yeah, it was really clear to see. And I just really like the, the process of it because it's very hands-on. And then, of course, you've got um, Monty Ravenscroft and Rosie Bynes from Petersham Nurseries. Um, 
the whole the whole uh, show was very involved. Was it a bit of a challenge working with a TV crew present? I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, do you know what? They are lovely people. I'm not just saying that because they might be listening. They were generally lovely people. It's an interesting setup. I had a sort of brushed with fame previously, so I sort of knew, you know, knew about it. But I, I think I've always had a healthy disregard for some of this stuff. What I do have regard for is, you know, technical expertise and. You know, all of the people involved in a, in, a, in a small crew like this are technically really proficient. You know, the, 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 the producers, the director, the uh, camera people, the sound guys. And I think having a really professional crew around you is really good because suddenly you think, holy, holy shit, I, I've got to be careful about this because I don't want to, uh, you know, say the wrong line. I mean, that's loads of energy and presumably cost that every, that all of these people, uh, I'm sort of wasting their time, if you like. So I'm kind of honoured to, to be working with them. I, I, I trust them. And I, you know, having gone through the grand designs process, which you know, came out really nicely for us, I thought, well, you know, I, I, my colleagues said that the grand designs that we did for Parkhouse was one of the first ones where the architect was actually an architect and not just a sort of glorified, you know, um, a, a sort of nerd on site who vaguely checked if the plaster was at this level or not, you know. And I, uh, the other thing about Inside Out Homes, I think, was working with Monty and, and um, Rosie was just fabulous. You know, like, I've known Monty for a long time, actually, bef- before the show, and, and sort of socially. And it's so nice to see someone who, who, who has, I think, a very similar brain to me, but didn't go through the sort of same training as me. And so has a sort of freer way of thinking about design. And if, you, if you come to him with a problem, he knows it's possible. It comes to me with a, with a similar problem. I'm like, well, I immediately think of the 20 reasons it's difficult and therefore expensive. He's like, no, no, there's a way of doing this. And, he, you know, and he's always right. I think that's, that's, it's just so inspiring to, to work like that. And, you know, I, we'd worked with landscape designers in the past that had just really planted stuff up and hadn't really listened and didn't really have an affinity to what the building was doing. I think working with Rosie Vines was... Wonderful because she, you know, we talk about the project properly beforehand. She have a proper think about it, you know, and sort of this double-edged sword of, on the one hand, uh, as a gardener, she has time to think and consider, which is something many of us lack, and sometimes in architecture we lack. Which is really lovely to sit next to because you're like, it, as I say, it sort of slows you down a bit, thinking, oh, okay, she's going to think for ten minutes, fine. Um, and then on the other hand, uh, she you know does look at what you're doing and they say, okay, well if that's what the architecture is about, this is what we should do with the planting. So it was you know it's a, it's a, it, it it was stressful because we were suddenly running. We usually stagger our projects so at the minute. We've got like uh, twenty projects, but they're staggered. So you know if there's not twenty projects on site, that would be an absolute killer for us. You know the stress would be out uh, just far far too much. Um, but this stuff all had to be delivered at a similar time. So we did have 12 projects, actually 13 projects, all running on site at the same time. Wow. And it's okay, but the buck stops with me in the practice. So I was running around being a bit presentary about the work I was doing, the work we were doing with the team, but also in the background, arguing with contractors about delay contract and arguing with planners about not giving us planning and you know, the usual stuff that makes you kind of worried. And all the while I had sort of Channel 4 breathing down my back saying, this thing needs to be delivered, you know, next week. And I'm like, well, the plan, you know, <laughs> you know I, I, I can't force planners 
to do their job properly you know yeah and in many cases they didn't so it was, it was just it just made our life really tough and I mean that, that was my biggest regret I think is I think they ended up having to split the the the, the seven episodes into two sections right because and I mean, that's possibly why they didn't recommission it because and it sort of lost our kind of you know prime time slot we need to recommission it i i need more episodes <laughs> I, you know what i would love 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 to do it again and i get nothing but good feedback on it and i really liked the idea at the beginning when, when john silver talked about it that the guy saying you know this sort of the kevin mcleod figure saying well i'm not sure if they're going to finish is the guy saying i'm not sure if i'm going to finish it's my it's all you know it's my problem it's just very it's just a very relevant show i think it um changed perceptions for some people as well about how you can work with a flat pack home you know how you can work with an architect on it and also the flat that you did in hackney which you opened up and put in the glass oh uh, yeah yeah was just absolutely stunning i love it thank you thank you i mean i'm still in contact with those clients you know it, 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 it's they're small projects that you know didn't didn't help our our pocket massively but i think they really they're really good lessons and you can't. You can, can you imagine if, if anyone else had a job where they were followed by a TV crew and they could go back and remember why they did the thing? It's such a learning experience. You know? Yeah. And, and it's also I quite like it because I kind of I've always known, I've always thought I had a sixth sense when it comes to architecture. You know, arrogantly. But but you know, on the other hand, I do listen a lot. And I, you know, recently I sort of wondered, oh, do I really? Am I wrong here? You know, when you've got some much more confident you know, maybe public school suited men in a room saying, no, 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 this is what you do. Um, you sort of, you, you listen. Well, and now what happens is I turn up and they've seen them on TV, so they, they actually listen. They, you know, if you say, I think you should do it this way, then we do it this way. And what's wonderful is it, it just means, okay, that means we can have a more interesting conversation about, well, how do you feel about this material? How do you feel about that material? You know, let's talk about the architecture rather than me drawing what you want. I loved also the, the double height tiled wall in the Harrogate episode. Oh, yes. Absolutely beautiful. Oh, thank you. That was, that was fun. I found your, your thoughts on prefab housing really interesting as well, and sort of the benefits of it. Do you see us using that form of housing more as time goes on again? I do. I, I do think that the future of, of architecture is going to have a large element of, of prefabrication, or at least what they call modern methods of construction. Because... Um, you know, from a sustainable point, point of view, we're not going to have a choice. And, you know, we still have a housing crisis that we've had now for must be 10, 20 years, you know. Um, and, you know, you have to be able to build good quality stuff relatively inexpensively. And we have the technology now to do it. And, and I, I think that, you know, people, people are scared of what they don't know. And I think when, when we were talking about flat pack housing 20 years ago, 10 years ago most people think ah oh, you know what no i'd rather just have it built out of brick you know it's solid and it will last um so so there was a sort of stigma related to that and related to the post-war prefab you know movement where, where these houses that were supposed to last 20 years some of them are still in place in areas of london yeah my grandparents house is still standing in leicester it's a prefab house and it's still there yeah is it you see and i think the people who live in them like they love them. They absolutely love them. But but from the outside, I, don't, I think it's not considered desirable, you know. But I, I I think as people, you know, get more and more bombarded by multiple, uh, you know, multiple images of different things and, and, and different cultures of design, they're they're a bit more open to it. And I think you're, you're right that the the project in Isha that we did for for the show, 
which was essentially a, a you know prefab system, was um, you know was a demonstration that well they don't have to look the way you see them these weird kind of white boxes they can actually be done you can do amazing things with them um, and 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 that's lovely on a private person's house but where 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 the kind of important work really is is okay. Can you can you build a prototype and ro- and roll that out to four hundred to four thousand homes that bring these kind of uh, life improving elements of build to 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 housing to everybody you know to as many people as possible you know if you if 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 you can buy a wimpy home but it's got little windows and minimum stairs and tiny corridors and it's you know, a bit dark in the middle um, or you have to stay in a flat in in, in the centre of down and it's got no energy and it's like a Victorian conversion. You'll probably stay in the Victorian conversion. But if you can move into a house that has skylights and big windows and a you know clever design around around terracing or external space and a connection with its environment in this inside out thing, this context element, um, I think people you know people are totally happy to do that and and, and to be able to demonstrate that in a small house was, was great. But we are working on on a, on a couple of schemes that might one day happen, where we want to roll out a a system build um, and develop a house type that can be adapted, so that you know uh, you, you buy a two bed house and then you just buy the extension five years later when you've got kids and it's a three bed house kind of as a, as a system. But but it would be uh, kit built, it would be fully sustainable, and it would be you know, in terms of operation, it would be um, very low carbon, so you need almost no energy to to um, to run the thing. I I was lucky enough to be one of the judges at the Sterling Prize a couple of years ago, and the, at the year that, that it was awarded to uh, a goldsmith scheme by Michael Riches, uh, which is a passive house council estate essentially. And that and that you know though it may have not been the prettiest project in the Sterling Prize. Um, I'm not saying it wasn't pretty, but it you know may it may not be the one that's you know some architects thought should be the winner because it's a piece of exquisite architecture. Um, it was revolutionary because you know you make met the tenants. The fact that their heating is less than you know sixty seventy quid a year, you know something like that was less than hundred pounds a year, is the single biggest change to their life. You know, which which you which you sort of forget. You know, the average wage in Britain is you know twenty something. It's not fifty something. Um, and then when you, you chuck in rent and everything else, you can imagine you know what actually a low a low pay or an unemployed you know, living unemployment must must be like. So so that you end up paying very very low energy costs and you get good daylighting and a bit of a balcony. I mean that's that's the best way of kind of helping someone back into society, isn't it? That, oh, absolutely. That's that's where the future architecture for me is like, you know, please, please, can we be building these kind of prototype houses based on the lessons we've learned um, and, and making a significant difference to people? Yeah, definitely. And, and your own home, obviously, you mentioned it a little while ago. What What's it like? How to describe it? It's basically a timber frame box on the upper level, sitting on top of a concrete uh a basin, a concrete kind of tray. So there are retaining walls on all sides. There's a kind of big concrete box underneath where the bedrooms are. 
which which give into various light wells, which also have concrete. And then on top of that is a is a uh, is a big sort of timber box which faces quite a nice garden. Lovely. And it's and I think the thing about it that that that, that was helpful for me is because it was my project, I was able to try and enact some of our sustainable um you know these ideas that we know work but we're never allowed to do because clients don't have the money or we're unconvinced up until quite recently so it's it's very uh it's very airtight it faces the right way it's a single mass so it's got the least amount of heat loss you know the simplest shape is the better in terms of apology so that you don't have tons of surface area to lose heat through yeah and it's a, it has a lot of glass on the south side. Beautiful. Facing a big tree. So that's that's one of the lovely things about it. So in the summer, when it could get really hot, because it's got a big window facing the south, there's a massive tree in front of it shading it. So you have natural sort of shading. And then just as, as the winter starts to kick in, all the leaves drop off, and then you get direct light at a lower angle, therefore deeper into the building, heating more of it. So that's the kind of energy cycle on it. And most of the energy is also recycled because we have what's called an MDHR unit, which is essentially a, a ventilation system that covers the heat. So the air coming into the house from the outside is warmed by the air leaving the house. Wow, that's clever. That, and that means that, you know, for example, when you're in a, you know, when you're heating a house and you kind of you and the and, and it's all very warm and you open the oven and you feel guilty about leaving the oven open for a bit because you're this all this energy is just going into the air. Um, I don't feel guilty at all because I know that any energy produced by any machine in the house will stay in the house and heat the house. So the fridge running away, you know, all, all, all night, and the you know ovens and washing machines and dishwashers, all and computers, all the energy that, that the heat is generated stays in the house. And and I think that's kind of the cornerstone of this house is we did it. It wasn't perfect, so it's not as airtight as it should be, and there was you know a lot of mistakes made along the way. But um, as a core principle. It just gives me the comments to say you have to do building like this because it, you know it makes a fundamental difference. And is it your dream home? Yeah, I mean, yes. The process was very painful for for many reasons. We had a, some serious fallings out, and financially it was kind of difficult. And we, I want to say, we almost didn't make it through as a as a sort of as a, as a couple because it was you know it really put pressure on us in a way it shouldn't have done i mean we we took a chance actually and maybe more of a chance than we should have done can't really say much more than that um but uh but now every time someone comes around and goes oh my god this is your house you think oh yeah you're right oh my god how lucky am i you know you really so so i think it is absolutely my dream home you know but in the back of my mind, and I love it, and my children have got, you know, they, they, it's transformed their lives. They had two and a half rooms to live in as they became teenagers. It was a nightmare. There was stuff everywhere and arguments about whose socks were whose socks and who hadn't cleaned up what are, you know, just the usual. Yeah. And now, now that they have a room that is theirs, and to be fair, an enormous amount of space to, to be in, um, I've noticed that their behavior has, has changed. And they... You know, I, I started and we'll need to continue a, a sort of a, a video podcast on the House of Sackville. And I think I, I mentioned in it that, you know, I wanted my kids to be like posh kids, you know, who were very confident and, you know, very eloquent about stuff in a way that I never was as a kid, you know, outgoing and, you know, free to express themselves. And you know what? That's exactly what's happening. You know, they, they are, I, I look at them and they come home from school with kind of political opinions and, and sense of justice and creative ideas and you think you know is, is that us or is it the house and i think some of it is the house it's the fact that they have 
don't have a lot of space. I worked out that the our main room uh, in this house, which is the living, dining, kitchen, is the space of our entire house before. Wow, goodness. The whole house, two, two and a half bedrooms and a, and, a, and a living room, kitchen. They all would fit into the, 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 the main room we've got in this house. It's amazing how quickly we get used to these things, isn't it? Yeah, you're right. You're right. And so I feel a bit reticent to say it's my dream home because in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, I fixed that problem. What's the next one? <laughs> you know? but that's just obviously your nature. That's just your nature as an architect. That's what you do, you know. But but actually, when people come around and say that, you, you think, you know what, I'm really, really lucky. Yeah. Sometimes when the kids play up a bit, you say, if you have no idea how lucky you are, you know, just just look around you. No one else has this. Yeah. It, which I think is the right attitude to have. Well, I wish you much happiness there. And thank you ever so much for talking to me today. If you'd like to have a look at the Zach Monroe Architects website, it is at www.z-m-a.co.uk. And you can see many of their homes, housing, community, commercial and landscaping projects. They also have Instagram at Zach Monroe Architects and Twitter at Monroe Zach. And over on the website, you'll find their other platforms too. As I mentioned, you can catch Inside Out Homes on Amazon Prime currently, and I so recommend it, having watched the series twice myself. You can see what I'm up to over on my website, Lucy Gleason Interiors, www.lucylovesyou.com, and find me on Instagram at Lucy Gleason Interiors. Next week, I've got another brilliant guest, so don't forget to subscribe to Live Your Own Way, and until then, have a good one. <laughs>